How's everyone doing? Good? Nice. So I would like to invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 22 to 25. It's a somewhat of a well-known passage. And the passage says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, I would like to thank you for this day that we are able to be gathered here and worship you and glorify you above all things, but also to learn more about you, to be transformed about, uh, from your word so that we may be conformed to the likeness of your Son. That's what I ask that this moment now will do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was preparing for this sermon and reading this message, I was reminded of a, a Christian philosopher who already passed away called Dallas Willard, and he wrote this book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in the book, he deals with uh, some theological ideas, and he's going to explain these ideas throughout the book. And right at the beginning of the book, there is one uh, phrase that he says that really struck me, and it reminded me, and I was reminded of it uh, this week when I was reading, and I think I've mentioned this quote before, but he says, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And what he means is that, since he was dealing with theological ideas or doctrines, is that sometimes when you grow up as a believer or in church, there are some ideas that it's not that you take them for granted, but that you've heard them all their life, all, all, throughout all your life. And then uh, you think you know that pretty well, until later in life you find out that you don't really know it. And that's like a good thing and a bad thing because it's a good thing that you really found out what that means. But the bad thing, it's like, man, I thought wrong about this all my life and I don't have to change. So it's, it's, it's this tension uh, in this thing. And this is not only focused on theological ideas or doctrines, but I would argue that it's also present in our reading of the Bible, in biblical texts. There are some texts that we grow up hearing and reading in church ever since we were kids. And when we become an adult and we hear someone preaching on it and they say, oh, he's going to preach on this passage, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what that means. And then I think the same idea applies. Sometimes we may know what the text is saying, but in reality, we may not know. So we always got to keep a, an eye out on this. And I think our passage today fits well into this category. And I remember when I moved from Brazil to the States that after a, a couple of months, I went to this Christian summer camp uh, with, I was a teenager back then, and 
It was just full of activities and games and a lot of songs that we sang. And one of the songs was on the fruit of the spirit. And it was like a very peppy song, like a very happy song. And for me, this passage, I always grew up with this passage as being like, a, oh, this is like a peppy passage. It's like a, not a self-help passage, but it's like a make you feel good passage. It's like, yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And as I was reading this week, uh, there were some things that made me question my previous thought on the passage. And I remember once uh, D.A. Carson, who is a famous New Testament uh, scholar, he was giving this talk, and at one moment he said something that everyone else quotes him for that. And he says, uh, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And what he means is that if you take a text and you don't look at the text in its context, you're probably going to read it wrong, and then you're going to defend something based on that text, which is not really inserted into the context. So it's like a, a really weird thing. So um, our passage today is on the fruit of the Spirit, and we've been through this journey uh, talking about life in the Spirit. And for the next four sermons, we are going to be dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. So I get the privilege of having the first message on the fruit of the Spirit, because then I can spend more time on context and talking about the Galatians letter and what that letter uh, really means. So let's set up the scene. First, it is a letter. So one of the things, if you would allow me to not be so much of a preacher now, but more of a teacher, I would say one a good exercise that you can do with Galatians, for example, is to go online, find the letter, and print it out on a paper without any chapter division, without any verse division, without any subtitles, and read it as a letter. Because if you don't know when the letter was written, it wasn't written with the chapter divisions or the verse divisions or the subtitles. It was just the text. And if you read it like this in Galatians, I did this this week, and it's like four pages, so it's not a big deal. You can do it like 30 minutes. And it will just be like a fresh reading of the text. It's going to be just so different than what you would read with all the divisions and the, and the subtitles and everything. So that's, that would be my recommendation. You know, over the past few weeks, Matt has always been recommending books for us to read. Uh, I don't have any book to recommend, so I recommend homework. So <laughs> you can go ahead and read the letter later. So it is a letter. And like most letters, uh, in uh, ancient times, the letter follows more or less a structure. So you have the name of the person who sent the letter, uh, to whom that person is sending the letter. Then you would have a greetings, like, like they usually said, oh, from God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, grace and peace to you. Then you would have a prayer request or a thanksgiving, 
And then after the prayer request, you would have the actual content of the letter where he, the person would discuss the whole thing that they wanted to discuss, and then you would have a conclusion. And when you think about all the, these six items and you go into Galatians, you will find one thing very interesting, that you have the person who sent the letter, you have the group who is receiving the letter, you have the greeting in the beginning, but you don't have the prayer request or the thanksgiving. He goes straight into the topic. And what most people will uh, think on this is that there is an urgency in Paul in writing this letter. There is a, there's something happened in Galatia that he really wants to address, and it is so urgent that he's going to skip the thanksgiving part and the prayer request part, and he's going to go straight into the topic. And this already begins to shed some light into our passage, because our passage is a happy passage. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But it's inserted in a letter in which the context is quite urgent and he can't waste any time. He needs to address whatever is going on in that place. So maybe our passage might not be so peppy or heavy. So the characters in the story, and it's a bit weird to talk about characters since it's a letter, but if you read the letter, you can more or less construct, let's say, the story world behind the letter, where you have the characters, you have the setting where it's taking place, you have the topics that they're addressing. And the first character that appears is the person who is sending the letter, which is Paul and all the brothers with him. So it's not only Paul, but all the brothers with him. And they are sending to the churches, so it's not one church, but it's more than one, the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia could be the north region or the south region, and people debate on this. But one thing important about Galatia, and you will see this as you read the letter, is that they are usually described as Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people. And Gentiles, in those times, they would be people that would have a Greco-Roman uh, worldview. So they have this, what Paul will call a pagan framework, from which they get all of their principles and values and the way they think and the way they act. It all comes from this Greco-Roman thinking. And when Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he becomes ill, he stops in Galatia and he's able to share the gospel there. And as a result, these people embrace the gospel of Jesus and these churches get started. And what you have here is not uh, a change in behavior or a change in the way they think or a change in value or in changing principle but it's a change in the worldview. It's a change of the framework. So the whole thing shifts. So these people are inserted in this context, which they were always a part of, but now they live in this new reality with this new framework, which brings about new ways of thinking and new ways of behaving, which I imagine would be quite similar for some of you who maybe grew up in Amsterdam and were not Christians to begin with, and you embrace the whole culture of the city, but sometime, somewhere along the way, 
you were reached by the gospel of Jesus and your life was profoundly changed and you have this new framework from which you live out your life, but at the same time, you're still inserted in the city. And then you have this moment of like, how do I live this new reality, this new life in Jesus, this new life in the spirit still inserted in this world that adopts my previous worldview. So this is a bit about Galatia. But then you have a third group that appears in the letter, a third character, and we may call this character the antagonist of the story. And uh, we're going to call, it's actually a group, not a person, but we're going to call them the teachers or the missionaries, whatever you want to call them. And what happened was, so the Galatians were living in that pagan situation. Paul comes as a result because of his ill, and then he ends up preaching the gospel, and he attributes even his illness to divine providence. God made me ill so I could be here and preach the gospel, and now things are great. So he really thinks quite differently than a lot of us. And so there is this change in them. Now they embrace this gospel of Jesus, which Paul will call a life of freedom or a life in the spirit. These are two terms that are going to appear throughout the letter. And there is this third group that appears after Paul leaves Galatia that come from Jerusalem. And they look at the Galatian churches and they're like, oh, this is great, this is good. They are embracing Jesus. But if you really want to embrace Jesus, there are a few things that you need to do in order to be called a Christian. And they come from a Jewish framework. So now the situation is even more complicated because you have a ch churches living in the gospel framework but they are inserted in a pagan framework. And now there are people coming to the church with another framework. So you have three competing worldviews all around in, that, in those churches. And what these teachers wanted the churches in Galatia to do was to follow the, the ritual laws of the Old Testament, of the Torah. And these would constitute of three main things. And here in the letter, it's going to be specifically one. The first one is circumcision, which is not fun. <laughs> the second one is food laws. So they would have certain things that they would have to eat or not eat. And the third one are the festivals that they would have to observe. And these teachers, they were saying, if you want to be believers, if you want to be Christians, you need to do these things. If not, then you cannot be Christians. And then Paul, Paul hears about this, and he doesn't, when he writes the letter back, he doesn't sound full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, apparently. So he writes this letter, and what he tells us, what he tells us, and he, he tells them, uh, he basically says that, look, you are living in a situation of slavery in your pagan worldview, and God, by his grace, through Jesus, he 
reached you and he gave you this new framework, this new reality from which you can live, live out your life and change the way you think, the way you act, the way you behave, and which is uh, a lifestyle guided by the spirit and is a lifestyle of freedom in opposition to a lifestyle of slavery. And he says, and now you have these people who are coming and they want to bring you something that's going to place you in slavery again. And for him, this just doesn't work. And throughout the letter, his whole argument is going to be to deconstruct the way those teachers uh, were teaching and what they were teaching. And Paul would be specially qualified for these because he was raised in those teachings. And in the letter, he'll say, look, I was one of the best of them. Seems like he's almost boasting. Like, I was one of the best of these. And I can tell you for sure that that will lead you to death and not life and not freedom that you are seeking. And then, so the question is, how do we live this freedom? And how do we live this life of what Paul calls a life of the spirit. And that's when our passage comes in. Now our passage here we read from verse 22, but I think it would be helpful if we were to start on verse 13, which is where, it's like the whole block where our passage is inserted. So he begins by saying to the Galatians, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So he is emphasizing that, that actually like the, the gospel that you are living, the gospel that I presented, that Jesus presented, is a gospel of freedom. You are called to freedom. But then he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And this is something that I think in our modern world, or to be more precise, our postmodern world, I think Paul here is really dealing with our concept of freedom. Because what, when we think of freedom today, is like, oh, what is freedom? Freedom is for me to get to do whatever I want, the way I want for me. And this is how freedom is viewed today. But Paul is saying, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says you have freedom, but this freedom doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want, because if you do whatever you want, you're not actually free. You are a slave to your desires and your flesh. So it's a really different way of thinking about freedom. And then he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, and here we have the first imperative or the command in the whole block, but through love, serve one another. And then we're like, well, that's not freedom. <laughs> like you're telling me that I'm free to do whatever I want, but then you tell me that freedom really is to serve Another person. And the term serve, the verb uh, doulaos, comes from the word doulos, which means slave. So what he's saying, but through loves, be slave to one another. Then you're like, well, that is definitely not freedom in my eyes. 
unless we are defining freedom in the wrong manner. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he will give here, uh, he will shed some light into another problem that was going on in that situation in Galatia. So they were not only embracing this other message of the teachers, which, Paul's, which Paul begins by saying, you are embracing another gospel, which in reality is not another gospel. It's just a false gospel. And here he talks about another problem that they were having on verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So they were not only embracing this uh, worldview that was actually making them slaves again. In this whole process, they were just destroying each other. He's saying, but if you bite or devour one another. So it's like strong words to describe what was going on. And the, and the way he phrases this is, is quite interesting because he says, you think you are biting and devour the other. But in reality, he says, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So, so he says, you think you are de destroying them? Actually, you're destroying yourself. And here, Paul emphasizes the, the community aspect of the church. That the whole bickering and fighting one another, you think you are... I'm on the right team and they're on the wrong team and I'm beating the right team, says, no, you're not beating the right team, you're just destroying yourselves. It's like if you were, this is a horrible example, but it's like if, if you were like a pirate and you're fighting with other pirates and like there's like cannon, like I'm gonna blow your ship and it's gonna sink and you don't realize that you're on the same ship. And if you blow their ship too much, the whole thing will sink and it's not gonna be fun for you. Not a great example, but it, it works. So he says, watch out that you will not be consumed. And this is the second command in the whole block. Then you get the third command. But instead of doing this, I say, walk in the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here Paul is saying again, Look, you have the freedom. But freedom doesn't mean doing whatever you want, the way you want, however you want, with the result that you want. Because if you do it, you are a slave of your flesh. Then you ask, how can I not be a slave of my flesh? He says, walk in the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And this is the third command. Walk by the spirit. And the term walk here is actually a very old term that precedes Paul. It's actually attributed to Aristotle. When he would teach his students, he would often walk around and the students would follow him as he was teaching and it would be like follow the leader, or like follow the master. So walk in the spirit, walk with him. He's leading you, he's guiding you in this way. And he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he will make the contrast between flesh and spirit. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposite to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And here he's talking about the other framework. Then he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So he says, if you want to live this freedom of do whatever you want, you are going to entertain the desires of your flesh. And he says, and these desires are pretty evident. If you look at a person who says, I am just going to do whatever I want and entertain every single thing that I want, he says, these things are going to be pretty evident. And the things that Paul, the list that Paul gives here, he will call them the works of the flesh. And works because they are the things that they do out of those desires. And he says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And a lot of them has to do with the communal aspect. A lot of these sins you don't do by yourself. You need to have another person in mind or another group in mind, which would fit really well into what was going on in Galatia. And then he gives the results of this lifestyle, much like a, what a prophet would do in the Old Testament, he would say, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul is saying, do you want to entertain all your desires? Do you want to do whatever you want, the desires of your flesh? That's okay. But no one thing. The destiny of that is that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to live this freedom, like true freedom? You have to live by the Spirit. And then he says, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things, there is no law. Against these things, you will inherit the kingdom. If you follow them, you will inherit them. Now, there is one thing that's like really interesting. If you look, he's contrasting these two worldviews. And he says, one is the works of the flesh. And he calls them works. They are the things you do. And then he expresses them in many different ways. But here, the good ones, uh, Paul actually calls them the fruit and not fruits. It's not plural. It's singular. Which for a, like a grammar teacher would say, oh, you said fruit, and then you list a whole bunch of that. <laughs> but I think Paul is being intentional here. Because the idea of the fruit of the Spirit and this list is that, and I'll give you another bad example because it's not good. These elements are not like a bunch of vitamins you take, like, now I have love, now I have joy, now I have peace, now I have kindness. He said, no, it's like a multivitamin. You take and you have the whole thing. <laughs> it works. It worked. I couldn't think of another one. So he says it's the fruit of the Spirit, and you have the whole thing. And this shows that 
we, we usually hear people saying, well, I'm great in love, and I'm great in joy, but patience? I'm really keen on loving a person as long as they're a bit far away from me. Because <laughs> if they're like too close, then I have to be patient with some of the things. That, so it's like love from a distance. And the fruit of the Spirit is not this. The fruit of the Spirit is like, no, the, this is like a package deal. It's all together. They work together. And the whole point of this thing working together is that maybe we should then redefine what we think about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Because if you ask someone today, oh, what is peace, for example? They'll say, well, peace is just to live very chill, you know, and be cool, no, no problem, it's just, I'm good, I'm in peace. But the term peace in Greek is the term irene, which means peace. But, but Paul is talking in this, with this Old Testament framework, and the word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. And while shalom may mean peace in terms of tranquility, it has a much deeper meaning. It, it, it's a peace that comes by reordering the chaos that our world is in. So shalom is this complete and peaceful thing. It's like reharmonizing the chaos and the imbalance that we live in. Now, if these churches, these churches are living in bickering and biting and devouring one another, there is no harmony there. It's just utter chaos. And what Paul is proposing is a peace that will reharmonize and will put things in order again. But in order for you to have this peace, you are going to need to talk one another. And that's going to demand self-control sometimes. And it's going to demand love. Love in the sense that it's a self-sacrificial love that you want to see the church grow as a whole. So you need love. You need peace, you need kindness and goodness, you need faithfulness in the sense of fidelity, not only to God, but fidelity to the other, to say, I am faithful to you as we are brothers and sisters, and I will help you to get out of this mess. And if that means saying some harsh things sometimes in order for you to get in line, then that's what we're going to have to do. So the fruit of the Spirit, it redefines the way, we, the way we live our lives and the way we behave. And he continues on verse 24, and he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he says, if you want to live true freedom... And if you want to live the life of the Spirit that is expressed in this multifaceted way of love and peace and joy and kindness and goodness and self-control, if you do that with the objective of serving one another, being, being slaves to one another, then you will have crucified the passions and desires 
of the flesh, and you will experience the true freedom that the gospel offers. And then in verse 25, and I would like to end with verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So on the one hand, you have the works of the law who are, or the works of the flesh, which he describes, which are things that you do in order to live out the desires of your heart, whatever you want. The fruit is something organic, and it's not something that you really plant. So the source of the fruit is not really you, but it's God who places that in you through the Spirit. So he says it's a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. And he says, but although it is the fruit of the Spirit, it comes from him. He says, if you live by that, keep living on that. So it doesn't mean, oh, I have the Spirit. Now I can do whatever I want, because now I'm good. Now I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, and goodness. Like, no, you have that, so keep on living on that. And that's the process of sanctification, which will take all our lives to do it. But that's what life in the Spirit means. It means that we are to live out as a community who really wants to preach freedom, true freedom, which is a life in the spirit. And this life in the spirit implies living out this multifaceted uh, fruit that is expressed in all these ways so that we can serve one another and together we can live the true freedom of the life filled with the spirit. Amen.